Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading nuclear deterrence experts for a lively discussion on current topics. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Deterrence Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the host and the guests are their own. All right, welcome to another edition of NucleCast. I am your host, Adam Wilder of the National Strategic Research Institute. Today, I have Bill Ostendorf as our guest. Now, Bill has a resume that is extensive and impressive. He has been, he's a retired um, Navy captain, was on board uh, submarines, was a commander of a submarine group. He has also been a senior official at the National Nuclear Security Administration. He has been a professor at the U.S. Naval Academy. He has done so many things, and he is now an advisor to several corporations in the nuclear industry. Of course, as a, as a Navy uh, nuclear officer, he knows nuclear propulsion and nuclear energy. And even as you look at his, his title there as teacher, we ask Bill, you know, Bill, why does it say teacher? And he says, well, I teach ESL to immigrants in Annapolis. So he's an all around good guy these days. And so I wanna thank you for joining us, Bill. Uh, thanks for coming on the show to talk a little bit about your experiences in the Navy, your time at uh, NNSA and your thoughts about the role of the sea leg in nuclear deterrence. So thanks for being here. Thanks, Adam, I appreciate the opportunity. So let's go back. And let's talk about your time in the nuclear Navy. And just how do you see the role of the nuclear Navy and of the sea leg as contributing to nuclear deterrence in the years ahead as we have you know, a growing Chinese nuclear arsenal, a recalcitrant and aggressive Russia? How do you see that role working itself out? Well, thanks for the question. And I'm going to go back to my time on my first submarine to kind of frame that experience a little bit, because I'm going to suggest, Adam, that not a whole lot has changed as far as the sea-based deterrent leg for the uh, ballistic missile submarines between the 1970s and today in 2022. Uh, I got my first submarine after going through Rickover's uh, nuclear power training program. And... Uh, in the fall of 1977, I show up as an instant on USS George Bancroft, one of the 41 for freedom, one of the ballistic missile submarines that had two crews, carried 16, uh, at that time, Poseidon missiles. And the very first week I was there to kind of set the context for the geopolitical environment we were in during the Cold War, my very first week on board, I was immediately sent to emergency action message, EAM training, because I was gonna be one of the two junior officers that had a role to play in nuclear command and control if we received a nuclear launch order. So I go to that training, 
we fly from our home port of Charleston, South Carolina, to the overseas deployed base of Rota, Spain. And we're going to go on a patrol out of there. The very first time I get underway on George Bancroft, I'm a brand new ensign. Again, have not been qualified to stand watches or anything. I'm asked to go to the bridge just to observe the underway uh, from Rota. And we're on the surface going out from Rota, Spain towards the international waters. And as soon as we crossed three nautical miles from land, which was the territorial limit at that time, today it's 12 miles. But as soon as we crossed three miles, we were instantly harassed by what's called a Soviet AGI. AGI is the US acronym for a Soviet intelligence collection vehicle or vessel. And for about two hours, there were cat and mouse uh, maneuvers with uh, this Soviet AGI on our starboard beam, less than 25 yards away. Uh, wow. But very close. You know, for your time uh, on Ramage uh, in the surface Navy, 25 yards is a pretty close, uh, it's very close. distance <laughs> to have any other vessel, you know, close in proximity to your ship. And uh, after a while, this vessel proceeded to crisscross our bow and uh, continued the harassment very close uh, quarters, again, 25 yards, uh, closest point of approach. We called in, was called an OPREP-3 Navy Blue Emergency Report to National Command Authority because we had a nuclear reactor. We had 16 nuclear missiles on board, and uh, this was clearly in violation of the U.S.-USSR Incidents at Sea Agreement that was uh, published in 1972. So that kind of set the stage so to speak, Adam, for my first uh, ballistic missile patrol there in the 1970s. And uh, we saw this heightened sense of awareness of the Soviet Navy forces, the U.S. Navy forces. Our job was to stay uh, undetected by the Soviets, maintaining 24-7 continuous communications with National Command Authority. We had a floating wire antenna that floated to the surface. We also had a separate communications buoy to ensure we're maintaining our communications connectivity with the chain of command in the event the nuclear launch order was going to come in. And so I did four patrols on that on Bancroft. Those are 70-day patrols, staying submerged undetected the entire time, trying to avoid any Soviet ships. Uh, it was an exciting time. Uh, it was uh, uh, had, its, had its moments. I'll just leave it at that. But I frame it that way because, to a large extent, the role that the SSBN plays today, both the Trident Ohio-class uh, ballistic missile submarine and its proposed replacement, the Columbia-class SSBN, play the same role, maintaining a reliable, credible nuclear deterrent at sea, capable of responding anytime, anywhere, as needed to support national security. So even though the Cold War is uh, over with, and you now we can talk about the blips with Russian Federation annexation of Crimea in 2014, the uh, invasion of Ukraine earlier this year, uh, quite frankly, as far as our sea-based deterrent, not much has changed. Even though the smaller numbers of those submarines, but the mission is still very critical and essential for our national security. Well, let me ask you a question. So as you talk about harassment from the Soviets, the, what instantly comes to my mind 
is as the United States Navy tries to operate inside the second island chain, potentially the East or South China Sea. And I, I wonder, if, you know, as technologies advance and as we potentially have, you know, uh, whether it actually comes to fruition or not in, in a tangible way soon, you know, there's high performance computing, potentially quantum computing. And I wonder, you know, we've got passive, you know, the, the ability to put passive sonar detection devices on, you know, the, the ocean floor or on the seabed, you know, and then whether, you know, space-based detection assets that are really, you know, from an imminent perspective, able to pick up changes in the, the ocean surface temperature or, you know, breaks in the ocean from say trailing a buoy or trail, you know, so I wonder, is it going to be much more difficult in the 5, 10, 15, 20 years ahead to be that secure second strike capability or that first strike capability, given the direction that technology is going? That's a great question. And I'm not going to pretend, Adam, to be current on all the technologies that are there on the horizon. So, uh, I'm not directly in touch with those kinds of discussions in my current capacity. Um, but being able to remain submerged undetected for a ballistic missile submarine, that still remains the biggest advantage, so to speak, that one of our submarines has, is to be out there in the middle of the ocean and nobody know where it is. Sure. Uh, a lot of developments happening in sonar, in sensing technologies, I was, was reading a news clip just earlier this week about, uh, and I don't know much about it, but the Navy has its own unmanned underwater vehicle, UUV, sure. uh, organization that is looking at uh, exploring technologies, some of which you referred to already in the question, how do you use those technologies in a way to help ensure that our submarine force stays uh, credible, and undetected. And those challenges will continue to uh, pre be presented to the U.S. Navy as technology develops. And uh, there's a whole panoply of those technologies that are of interest. Uh, quantum computing plays into that. The ability to process space-based data uh, sources is also another element. So there's a lot out there. Now, as you, let's say you we're, we're going to leave uh, the submarine fleet in You've spent time on Capitol Hill, and you spent time on Capitol Hill working nuclear issues, yep. working modernization, working funding. What would you say were some of the biggest lessons or takeaways that might be useful to our listeners and, and those here on the podcast? Sure. You know, I, I'm going to say number one was the absolute need to educate members of Congress in what our nation's nuclear deterrent is and what investments are required to keep that deterrent credible and reliable. Uh, that's, a, that's, not, that's not a 60-minute lesson. Uh, it involves uh, going to sea on board a submarine, perhaps. It involves going to uh, Minot Air Force Base and seeing uh, ICBMs in the winter, and silos. Go in the winter. Yeah, yeah. You've got to go exactly. to Minot in the winter. You can't yeah. go in the summer. Yeah, 
<laughs> it involves understanding our Air Force bomber capability. Uh, so, and then, then you have not just the delivery platforms between the intercontinental ballistic missiles, the uh, bombers, and the submarines, but then you need to look at the warheads themselves. And uh, understand the warheads themselves is not, again, a 60-minute lesson. Uh, when you go look at Los Alamos, Lawrence Livermore, Sandia National Laboratories, the Nevada National Security Site, Kansas City Plant, uh, Pantex, Y-12, Savannah River Site, all those different uh, locations in the National Nuclear Security Administration, NNSA family, each one of those locations plays a very critical, essential role. And it all kind of comes together to be integrated into programs that bring these warheads into weapons that are carried on those three types of delivery platforms we already mentioned. So taking the time for members of Congress and their staff to go visit these places in person. Uh, once one does that, it's been my experience, and I work on the Republican side uh, of uh, the House Armed Services Committee, but I'll, I'll tell you, Adam, my experience was uh, there is bipartisan support, bipartisan, for ensuring that our nuclear deterrent capability was credible and reliable, and that requires funding. And so I think a good news story from my time on the Hill, but I think it's still the case, is that uh, members of Congress understand, hey, this is what it takes, this is what's required in order to properly fund and resource this really important element of our national security. And so far, that's, that's been occurring on a routine basis every year. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the ANWA Deterrent Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. As you think about, you know, one of the things I, you know, I've been an educator for most of my post-uniform service career, and I've noticed that many young people um, know very little about, you know, they most of them are too young to remember the Cold War. Yeah. The college student now, I mean, you know, so if you're entering college now, you were born in 2004. Yeah. Yeah. That's when the so they really know nothing about the Cold War. And so the the idea it, and it's a problem not just for sort of the the uh, MLAs, the military legislative assistance on the hill, but it's a problem for let's take the weapons labs. Uh, I was you know talking to somebody earlier today uh, at one of the you know, a friend of mine who's at the labs for meetings. And he said that 
that this lab uh, senior leader was was you know uh, explaining that the labs are having a real problem convincing younger people to go into the sciences that are useful for the labs and then being able to recruit them uh, to come work at Sandia or Livermore or Los Alamos. And so as you spent time on the Hill, there's, there's clearly young folks love politics and policy. That, that's, you know, there was never a shortage of folks who wanted to do that. But how do we convince folks to, to go into, whether it's nuclear strategy or whether it's nuclear physics, do you see, I mean, you've been a professor at the Naval Academy, you teach ESL now. So as a, as, you know, a professor, how do you get folks interested in wanting to contribute in those critical areas? A great question, and it's an ongoing challenge. Uh, you take somebody who has uh, a bachelor's degree or master's or PhD in applied physics or nuclear engineering or fill in the blank, it could be metallurgy. Uh, they have a lot of opportunities in the private sector to go and uh, achieve, you know, out of college or the graduate school, a higher level of pay than they might working for the federal government. Sure. Uh, but what I'd suggest, Adam, is what many of the private sector entities don't have is the clarity of the mission of supporting United States national security. And it's that clarity, that's you know, being part of a team that's going to be responsible for ensuring that a given warhead uh, sure. is reliable and especially in the challenge of not having nuclear testing the way we did during the Cold War, that's a huge challenge. And being part of a team that works on something that important, I think, resonates with many young people who uh, will have an idealistic bent trying to serve their country, maybe not in uniform as you and I did, but perhaps as a scientist, as an engineer, uh, working on key issues that support our stockpile. And so I think it's that mission contribution that I would highlight. And I have highlighted in my classes what I've been teaching. Now, let's move from Capitol Hill and over to NNSA at the Forstall building. Yeah. And so you were the, the principal deputy at yeah. NNSA. And you were there, you know, in the what, about 2007 to 2009 timeframe. Yes which was a really sort of a critical time because these weapons modernization programs take decades. Yeah. So what was going on then is still, you yeah. know, going on now. Yeah. Well, great, great question. One of the things uh, heavily involved in was the W 76 one life extension program for our submarine uh, warheads. Uh, now the W 76 two is, as a matter of fact, but that time I was working with uh, people on the W 76 one we were looking at trying to replace uh, outdated facilities at Y-12 and at Los Alamos National Laboratory. Uh, some of that work has been done. Some of it still is yet to be done, trying to modernize the actual complex. Uh, Let me interrupt you because yeah. you said something that was really important that I want to ask about, and that is facilities. And so, you know, I've spent a lot of time out at the labs and I'm 
familiar with like, for example, the at Los Alamos, the, the pit manufacturing yep. facility. These, yep. these are, these are uh, by no means inexpensive facilities yep. to build. Yep. How do you convince members of Congress, the American public, that the need for new facilities at, say, Savannah River or at a pit facility at Los Alamos or, you know, something that Livermore needs and that are all incredibly expensive facilities. How do you convince members of Congress, spend money on these facilities, don't spend money on, you know, a social welfare program or something else that they might want to spend money on? That's a, that's a really critical question you just asked, Adam. I think the first step is to educate the members of Congress on why our country needs a credible, reliable nuclear deterrent. Uh, you can't get into programmatics or funding or budget or OMB issues uh, to discuss details of facilities unless and until you've actually set the foundation of why this nuclear deterrent is important to our national security and why we must fund it. Uh, second piece is you want the government officials, myself in that position, uh, others uh, need to be honest and credible with Congress uh, to uh, not sugarcoat things. There, there's challenges. There's going to be problems. You mentioned one already, pit production. Pit production is very difficult. Uh, we were making a few pits a year when I was there at NNSA. Uh, I'll fast forward to 2017 to 2020. I served on a National Academy of Sciences committee looking at uh, what's called the dilute and dispose method for disposition of excess weapons grade plutonium. And we visited Los Alamos and uh, Savannah River site, uh, waste isolation pilot plant in New Mexico as part of that. And I go from 2007 to 2020, 13 years, that challenge is still there. It's still very yeah. difficult. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I think uh, the NSA administrators have been very honest in their congressional testimony about this is not an easy thing to do. And so pit production itself, which is essential to ensuring our future weapons stockpile reliability, that's just one example, but a critical one of why we need to show these facilities to members of Congress, show them what we need in order to be successful, and then hopefully just make the case by that demonstration. Let me sort of change the subject and and ask you sort of a question out of the blue. Do you think, and this is just something I've wondered over the years, and I've sort of asked the question and had different answers. Do you think that NNSA and its current structure is best positioned to effectively control warheads, modernize warheads, and meet the the demands, you know, for nuclear warhead modernization in in the years ahead? And if so, what is it doing right? And what is it doing wrong? And what would you recommend for reforms? Well, that's that's a loaded question. I, uh, I'll give you my personal opinion, and sure. I realize there's lots of opinions out there on this exact question. Uh, and, uh, again, I, I'm not current in this. I did testify 
gosh, maybe eight years ago before the Mies Augustine panel looking at reforming NSA. Uh, I have an opinion on that. My opinion is that the organization of NNSA within the Department of Energy as a semi-autonomous body, uh, that is okay. I think with proper communication between the administrator of NNSA and the secretary and deputy secretary of energy, that that communication and trust can overcome any wiring diagram concerns. so that's one piece that's been discussed a lot. Should there be a separate agency outside Department of Energy should be part of Department of Defense? I think the current organizational lineup is, is okay. I don't think it requires any modification. The other piece is, is essential is ensuring that there is a true partnership between NNSA and the national laboratories, Los Alamos, Sandia, Lawrence Livermore, and the sites. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think Jill Ruby is doing that at NSA. I think Liz, Lisa Gordon Haggerty did that before Jill. Uh, it requires constant uh, communications and uh, alignment on what is important because the budgets are not unlimited. And at the end of the day, somebody's going to have to uh, make some make some hard decisions. Hopefully, based on the best you know information available. I ran the budget process for a couple of years when I was there. I spent a lot of my time on on these issues. A lot of attention to detail. It's hard, but I think make, making sure there's a true partnership uh, with em- embracing the labs and the sites is also a key element. That re- it, you have to have that partnership and trust in order to be successful. Now, you sat on the military side. You sat on the congressional side. You sat on the DOE side. Now, I want you to sort of take a look from the from the industry side. Yeah. And what does industry need to really think about? Because you know, we, we've gone through a period where we didn't really modernize for four decades. And so now industry is in the process of trying to build Sentinel and B21. And there's, you know, we're in this heavy modernization period. But for industry, what recommendations would you give them? as they think about the future and as they think about, you know, how to position themselves, how to meet the demand, but also how to remain, you know, viable organizations. Because many of the, the corporations and the businesses that supported, you know, the nuclear, the nuclear enterprise, you know, they've gone out of business because there was no demand. And yeah. so, the, you know, modern suppliers have to think about that. Yeah, uh, that's that's a really important issue, Adam. Uh, I, I would just offer a couple of thoughts here. One of them is, uh, again, c- clear communications between the Department of Defense, Nuclear Weapons Council, uh, the various organizations in OSD policy and an acquisition to ensure clarity of what the requirements are. And then a conscious, a conscious, uh, disciplined approach to avoid changes to those requirements, because we've seen all kinds of cost overruns, schedule delays. When somebody throws a monkey wrench into a big programmatic uh, decision by changing what the requirements are, so locking down requirements early, both on the government side as well as agreeing to that 
on the corporate side is, is absolutely essential. Uh, I think that industry will serve themselves well by clearly communicating their challenges and problems. So I mentioned earlier the challenge of pit production at Los Alamos. Uh, being honest about saying this is a really difficult step for us to do, and here's why, and maybe here's some good ideas we industry might have in order to make it easier. And then the federal side needs to be receptive to hearing that feedback and acting upon it in a you know, responsive uh, time period such that good suggestions for change that benefit everybody can be acted upon without it taking three or four years to, to make those decisions. So let me ask you, sort of taking us away from that, you've also been at, at the NRC as a commissioner. And, and as you take a look in, at the NRC, do you see a role for nuclear energy to influence and impact the defense side uh, uh, of nuclear? Or do you think that they're sort of wholly separate and yeah. you know, sort of never the twain shall meet? No, I think there are significant overlaps in the human capital side. And in some limited cases, even in the facility investment side, between the nuclear weapons complex and the commercial nuclear energy sectors. Uh, I've been involved as, you know, tangentially on this uh, committee on nuclear energy and national security for the last five years. Uh, it's uh, hosted out of the Atlantic Council in DC, uh, trying to bring those two communities together in a way to see where can we capture some synergies that might be a win-win. Uh, you mentioned earlier supply chain limitations as the demand for new parts has uh, basically in the 1990s went way down when we're not doing any modernization. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think parts, uh, supply chain support are, are areas where there can be some crossover positive uh, wins for the nuclear industry and the nuclear weapons complex. But it requires, you know, some kind of a matchmaker up front to kind of create these the awareness of what the needs are and to get that up front and to capture how those, uh, those matchups might occur. So we're down to our last question. And as I ask this question, I would ask you, uh, so I was looking at the, the year you graduated and were commissioned in the United States Navy. And I was uh, less than a year old at that time. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna lie, I'm, I'm, you know, pushing 50 these days, so okay. I'm not far off. And so you've been around a while. Okay. And as you've been around and you've been military, Capitol Hill, academia, you know, in an essay, you, you've, you've really had a pretty wide and varied career. And you look at the world in front of us and the threats we face and the rise of China and the recalcitrance of Russia. And, you know, I think it was this week or maybe late last week, the Iranians said we have the capacity to make a bomb. And you look at that world. What, what uh, advice do you give 
the young academy uh, cadet who is in his first or second year and is thinking about becoming a nuclear propulsion officer or thinking about the role of nuclear weapons in throughout his career. What advice do you give him? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, and I, I was privileged to have five years teaching here in the political science department. Uh, it was a great opportunity, and I had a chance to talk a lot about geopolitics. I taught courses on grand strategy and nuclear weapons policy. Uh, I mean, the world today is is very dangerous. Uh, we've seen events, uh, you know, show us the modernization efforts by China with respect to their nuclear weapons capability, uh, the expansion of their Navy. Uh, We've seen uh, Vladimir Putin uh, invade sovereign country, Ukraine, earlier this year in the worst outbreak of uh, military activity since World War II in Europe. Uh, We've seen the Iranian nuclear program uh, and we've seen, you know, just recently Iran is promising drones to the Russian Federation for the Russian Federation to use in the Ukrainian conflict. Uh, the world's a dangerous place. And I think the advice I give to young men and women, uh, irrespective of what they do when they graduate from Naval Academy, they can be a pilot, surface ship, a sailor like you were, a submariner, Marine, uh, Intel, uh, et cetera is just go do the very best job you can because everything that's being done in the Navy Marine Marine Corps in some way supports U.S. national security. And you can't always predict exactly what that venue might be, but if you're a professional working your qualifications, being dedicated as an officer to fulfilling your oath of office, uh, then that's a great feeling. It's something that you ought to take tremendous pride in and uh, I can look back now, it's 50 years ago, I started my plebe summer here at the Naval Academy, summer of 1972. I would be, uh, my life would not be what it is today were it not for that military experience I had and the privilege to serve the country. So I think talking to young men and women about the, the privilege of service and what they're doing to be part of something bigger than themselves still remains the case today in 2022. All right, and with that, I want to thank Bill Ostendorf, retired Navy captain, former Senate-appointed approved official. I mean, the, your resume is amazing. I'm, I, of course, am jealous. Hopefully one day I will be there too. But Bill, I want to thank you for your time with us today. And uh, thanks for speaking with us and sharing your experience and just having a... a a lovely conversation about where we see the future going, where we see the future of modernization and the role of nuclear weapons um, in the very uh, uncertain years ahead. So thanks for being with us. Thanks for the opportunity, Adam. It was great talking with you.